sounds like that sweet bird of salesmanship. He don't bite, he just buys. He don't peck, he just checks you out. if you will see how I bring it all full circle cause I made clerks <laughs> oh it's fat Kev Smith man and that bird of salesmanship Jonathan Livingston sell goal could only mean one thing man I'm gonna whore some shit at you right now I gotta pay some bills bitch does it irritate you if this puts you off in some way? You find this distasteful? The fuck you think all this good shit happens, man? Bird of salesmanship's flying. Look up. Come see a Smodco show. Oh, oh, come see a Smodco show. What up, bird? Come see a Smodco show. Sing it. Come see a Smodco show. And that's right, man. If you're a fan of Hollywood Babylon, we're coming back with a vengeance. All August long, man. Every Saturday night, me and Ralph doing Hollywood Babylon together. All over each other on our necks and chests. and Maybe a little bit on our back, man. Uh, August 4th at the John Lovitz Podcast Theater. August 11th at the Coach House in San Juan Capistrano. August 18th at the John Lovitz Podcast Theater. And then August 25th, me and Ralph take our shit international. That's right, man. International Babylon. Uh, Hollywood Babylon in Ottawa. My Ottawa debut. Ottawa up there in Ontario. Ottawa Babylon at the Centerpoint Theater, August 25th. For tickets to every Babylon show I'm talking about, go to BabylonKev.com. B-A-B-B-L-E-O-N-K-E-V.com. Or pop on over to CSMOD.com, man, because CSMOD.com will tell you about other shows, not just Babylon. For example... Portland, I'm coming to you. Yeah, Oregon, not Maine, Oregon. I want to touch your Oregon, man. Deep, man. Get up there. Futs around with a little bit. I guess that doesn't sound sexy. The <laughs> term futs. Uh, Portland, Oregon, man. The Aladdin Theater. It's me and Scott Mosier doing Smodcast live in front of people. That's right. August 17th, me and Scott Mosier, Aladdin Theater, Portland, Oregon. Uh, Celebration 6, Star Wars, Celebration 6, the Chapin Theater in Orange County, uh, at the Orange County Convention Center in Orlando, I should say. Orlando, I love you, Orlando. August 23rd, 7 p.m., man, come check me out. I'm going to be making all sorts of non-numb jokes like fucking non-numb. You ever notice non-numb's face looks like my mother's pussy? It's a trap. You know, shit like that. Mixing up my references and whatnot. Then, get old. Jay and Silent Bob get old at the Fan Expo Canada show. That's right. You love comics? Come see some comics. Some see, some, come see me and Jay. Go to smodcast.com. Listen to any episode of Jay and Silent Bob get old. That's pretty much what it's going to be. Right up there at the Fan Expo Canada, August 24th. Jay and Silent Bob get old. Tickets available at CSMOD. These are the, show, the shows that I'm going to be in this week. Uh, of course, there's a new Fat Man on Batman uh, that played came up last week, midweek, uh, that I did with Ralph Garman. Go give it a listen. There'll be a new one dropping this week as well. Brand new episode of Fat Man on Batman. Brand new episode of Smoothie Makers went up last week uh, with Roger Corman and William Shatner. Give that a listen. It's pretty damn fascinating. Brand new Plus One went up last week as well. 
um, with Harley uh, playing her bass on stage for the first time, a rock and roll show, and some tape. We had some audio, some delightful audio gold of a 25-year-old Jen Schwabach doing a, an interview for USA Today. So go check those out at smodcast.com. Um, uh, spoilers, man. Uh, last week, we watched The Watch and talked to Len Wiseman. This week, we see Total Recall, which Len Wiseman directed, and we talked to Malin Ackerman. Uh, go to hulu.com slash spoilers. Canada, you can watch it on space on the Space Network or on Space Channel, I should say, or spacecast.com. Uh, uh, if you love games, fun and games, and who doesn't, man? Who doesn't love to have their mind uh, mind pussy tickled? You know how you make that happen? Go to smarcade.com, S-M-A-R-C-A-D-E.com. Pick up one of our games, man. Uh, Let Us Dance, which is totally free. Or uh, uh, Too Fat to Fly, which costs you 99 cents. Give you hours of enjoyment as you make me uh, do something I can't do in real life. Fucking fly. Uh, If if that don't tickle your fancy, you want to watch more free shit, you're like, where's more free? Go to the YouTube channel, sit, Smodco Internet Television. YouTube.com slash csmod. You can watch clips of me and Ralph doing Hollywood Babylon on the Electus channel Loud on YouTube. YouTube.com slash loud. Uh, As always, the portal for all the things we do, man. Our our, our vag, if you will. The vagina, the vagine, the wizard sleeve of Smodco is uh, smodcast.com. Click on that. It'll take you anywhere you want to go in our universe. Uh, Meantime, without further ado, man, enough horn, man. Let's let that bird fly. Go ahead, fly, little bird. All right, man, enough of this shit. Get ready for a brand new Smodco podcast starting now. This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream.
Hey, everyone. It's Kelly here. It's August 10th. The podcast today. Welcome to Waking from the American Dream. Uh, that is Life the Movie by, uh, I think it's the Custer family. The Custer. Oh, God, I don't know. I'm so spaced out today. I'm really tired today. I hope I can make it through this show. I do hope that you all call in today. Not yet. Don't call in yet. Uh, but I'm really excited. Today is a call-in show. We did this about, oh, I don't know. Did we do this two, three, four, five weeks ago? Uh, had a great time uh, having everyone call in and having a great conversation. We talked about heckling last time and and all sorts of stuff. Uh, today is a little more amorphous kind of a topic. It's, the topic is failure. And you're like, failure? Who wants to fucking talk about failure? I do everything in every moment of the day trying to avoid that very thing. So why the fuck do I want to talk about it with you? Exactly. That's exactly why I want to talk about it with you. Uh, the number here is 323-473-3112. But don't call yet. We're going to call uh, a few more minutes here. I uh, just want to catch up on the world. Been watching a lot of Olympics. Do not call and tell me the um, outcome of the women's soccer game because I am going to be watching it after the show. I've got it on the TiVo and don't want to know that yet. But uh, it's been a great week. Very exciting. I used to be an equestrian, so I was watching the individual show jumping. And I kept thinking to myself... I can't believe I used to do that. I used to jump those big, we call them fences, uh, five foot, five, three, five, six fences every once in a while, a six foot fence. Uh, I, I'm, I'm shocked and, and just really stunned that I used to do that. And then I thought, oh yeah, I was stoned the whole time. I can't believe I did that and I did it stoned. <laughs> Because as a teenager, I smoked pot pretty much 24 hours a day. So I don't really think there were many moments when I wasn't stoned. I mean, yeah, okay, there were moments when I wasn't stoned. But I, I, I rode those horses a lot when I was stoned and um, and had a lot of failure, too. Definitely had a lot of failure uh, in the equestrian world. My horse, I had one horse named Slickafella. Slick a fella. He was very cool. Uh, but he used to refuse what they, it's when they stop in front of the fence and they don't jump over. And I used to fly over him. Um, and so that was, that was always a difficult failure to do that. Um, so what else? Oh, the, and, and the opening ceremonies, I, <laughs> I don't, I cannot, um, clearly live up to how Greg Proops, uh, described the opening ceremonies but if you get serious xm and listen to my show the kelly carlin show on uh carlin's corner this weekend uh you will die of laughter because he just goes on and on and on about it he's so fucking smart and funny uh and uh but here was my take on it all i I think that if i had been in the stadium it would have been beautiful and i would have been able to get what was going on and uh, I think maybe if I'd been watching the BBC feed of it, I would have been able to follow it. But the NBC footage of it with the Matt Lauer, uh, what's her name? Uh, Vieira's, uh, Meredith Vieira's uh, commentary about it was, yeah, <laughs> it was pretty funny. It was pretty bad. Um, I'm here in the studio all by myself today. So uh, if there's like some pauses or something, it's because I'm trying to figure out what the hell I'm doing. I've got three computers going. I've got my computer that's 
casting you out, casting the show out into the ethernets. Then I have my other computer that's got all my um, music and stuff on it. And then I have my iPad plugged in, which has got my Skype on and running, uh, which uh, once again, the call in number is 323-473-3112. And if anyone wants to call in, and talk about failure. You know, here's my take. I'm interested in all, kind of all aspects of it. The psycho, the inner psychology of failure. The, um, oh, 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 good. Oh, look, we have a caller. Fantastic. Hello. Hello. Is this the lovely and talented Kelly Carlin? Yes, it is. And this is Dylan Brody. Hey, Dylan. Welcome to the show. Hello, Kelly. Thank you for having a show. <laughs> well, I'm glad somebody thinks that in the world. <laughs> I suspect there are tens, if not dozens of us. At least dozens. At least a couple of dozen. Maybe a dozen dozen out there. Who knows? I never know. How are you, Kelly Carlin? May I call you Kelly Carlin? You may call me Kelly Carlin, Dylan Brody. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so Dylan, do you have a story of failure today? I have a story of failure and personal humiliation uh, for, that took me 25 years to, to find redemption on. Wow. And actually, you were there when I found redemption. Wow, I don't remember this. This is going to be good. There's I'm no like... way you would know. Oh, good. There's okay. no way you would know. Okay, good. Okay. I moved to Los Angeles, 1986. Uh, Ronald Reagan was president, though he did not know it at the time. <laughs> and uh, I was in a movie. I was a essentially a glorified extra, but it was a, a, a character was in the whole movie. Just I had no lines. Um, and it was a movie written and and written by and starring Martin Mull. It was directed by Robert Downey Sr. And it was an all-star comedy cast that included Shelley Berman, Dick Sean, Kenneth Mars, James Coco uh, at first, and then he died before we finished shooting, and then Kenneth Mars took over his role. Uh, uh, Jennifer Tilly was in it before anyone had heard of her. Wow. Robert Downey Jr. was very young, and he was in it. It was a huge thing for me to be involved in, and it was very exciting. And, of course, Martin Mull. The script was brilliant. The movie, not so much. Um, but there were a bunch of us who had these small, non-speaking roles who also had talents, who were comics. One was a, a snake dancer at a strip club. That was a woman. Um, uh, there was this singer, uh, uh, an actress named Andrea, oh, I've forgotten her name right now, but uh, she was a wonderful dancer who was in it. Uh, she was late, She later sort of became a star, uh, Andrea Parker, um, in a, a TV show called The Pretender, um, was a, just a, a non-speaking dancer in it. There was just all these people who were talented on set. So Martin decided that at the rap party, we would have essentially a talent show. <laughs> he would host I would get to do comedy Andrea would dance the snake dancer would do her thing with her snakes uh, Shelley Berman was going to do a set uh, Kenneth Mars was going to do something and it was very exciting for me because I was going to get to show off doing stand-up comedy in front of Shelley Berman in front of Martin Mull in front of all these heroes and at that time I was uh, 
very young, sort of at the outer rim of Sam Kinison's circle of of uh, adoring entourage, uh, spending a lot of nights hanging out at the Central before it turned into the Viper Room, doing cocaine, and then greeting the sunrise on sunset. Ah, uh, the 80s. And having that <laughs> 1980s life. <laughs> so we had a rap party of a Friday night, and it was a a... Coke sprinkled, alcohol drenched rap party in a huge space. And Martin came out and did five minutes, and nobody was listening because they were all partying and drinking and doing blow. And he brought out Shelly Berman. And Shelly Berman did 12 minutes, and nobody was listening because they were all partying and drinking and doing blow. And Martin Mull, being a, a show business professional, thought, well, let's see if the snake dancer can get their attention. <laughs> so he brought out the snake dancer stripper and nobody watched because they were all drinking and doing blow. So he figured out that the show wasn't going to work. And he went on stage to say, OK, we're not going to have a good night. Thank you for watching. Good night. Enjoy your party, which was the right thing to do. But I was 24. Two, <laughs> and wired out of my mind. And I had written material specifically for this show uh, that was uh, essentially insulting pot shots at everybody in it as though it was a roast. <laughs> um, so I was very upset because I was on blow and he was taking away my chance to show off in front of all these people, which somehow in my mind had turned into was going to be my big break. Um, so as he was closing the show, I screamed at him, no, 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 I was promised stage time. Bring me up. You bring me up. I was promised stage time. I can rule any room, anytime, anywhere. And he sort of shrugged and said, okay, ladies and gentlemen, apparently the son of Sam. <laughs> and walked off. And I went on stage with my mean-spirited jokes. Uh, very exciting to work on a, a film by Robert Downey Sr., starring Robert Downey Jr. Wonder how he got the job. Um, <laughs> enjoying the work of this beautiful young actress, uh, Meg Tilly's sister. It was that kind of stuff. <laughs> and I'm doing these jokes out oh, into God. the void of sort of, it would be silence, except that they're not listening enough for it to be silence. I am speaking into a room full of people who are enjoying the party. And it's not working, so I get louder, and I'm, I'm turning into Kinnison, with whom I've been spending too much time anyway. I'm yelling into the microphone. I'm shifting into tried and true stuff from my act on the road. Nobody is putting their focus on me. And the assistant director made an executive decision, turned off the mic, turned on the music. And like mid-sentence, I was no longer even audible. And suddenly it was a dance party. <laughs> and I slunk off stage, mm. hating myself and hating the assistant director, but it gets worse. Because due to some audio problems, we had to go back to set the following week. The rap party happened before uh. we had to go back in for reshoots. Uh. <laughs> so I had to go back on set with Martin Mull and Shelley Berman, who walked up to me and said, I couldn't win them over. What made you think you could? And he walked away from me. And Martin Mull sort of walked past me, smirking at one point on set and said, back from the World Public Humiliation Tour, and went on with his day. And for literally years afterwards, 
if I thought about this moment when I was shaving, I would cut myself just a little bit. Mm. I would do that inner flinch thing and the razor would catch and mm. I would I'd then have to wear toilet paper for the day as a badge of my humiliation. Um, and I carried this with me as an unredeemable failure for years and years and years. And then in the first season of The Green Room with Paul Provenza on Showtime, a show of which I believe you became producer in the second season, mm-hmm. uh, I was in the audience and Paul had said, can you be one of the people sitting sort of up front in the audience? So if you have anything to add to the conversation, you can chime in. And I was holding out. I wasn't going to. I wasn't going to be that guy. But at one point, I saw sort of a setup to a joke that I knew worked. And I raised my hand and offered it up and got a good solid laugh. And it happened to be during the episode that included Martin Mull. Mm. And it built off of something he had said. So I got this laugh and he chuckled and the conversation went on. And afterwards, I went to him and I said, Mr. Mull, and he said, hey, that was a pretty funny joke you did. And I said, thank you so much. It felt to me like personal redemption because I really humiliated myself in front of you 23 years ago uh, at a rap party once. And he looked utterly baffled and said, I I think that was a more important event to you than it was to me. Mm. And went on with his evening. Mm. But it it was it was a moment when I learned about trusting the older comics and the 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 longer standing professionals when they judge that a room isn't going to work. <laughs> yes, I learned about the the idea that there are some rooms that you cannot win over and you have to let go of. Mm. And I learned that uh, sometimes if you hate yourself over something for long enough eventually somebody will say something nice to you. Well, and really, Dylan, what I got from it, too, is that you carried it around as this epic failure, which was really just this naivete and this, you know, this uh, young man's hubris. But, you know, uh, you know, I'm sure Shelley Berman and Martin Mull walked out of there and, and never thought of it again. And yet you walked around with it for 20 some odd years. And... And I think that's that's kind of, a, you know, a, a great point about, you know, failure is that it, it can mean a lot to us. But most of the rest of the world, like we are, you know, is narcissistic and doesn't really give a shit about our failure. And even and even that kind of caring about our failures is a form of narcissism. Yes. Yes. There, there's a guy I know who runs a business. And when I went in to meet him at his office, he said, I'm sorry, I'm going to need a minute. I'm putting out fires. I've made three huge mistakes today, and I just have to fix them, and then we can talk. And when we talked, I said, how do you make three huge mistakes and not beat yourself up all day about it? And he said, if I beat myself up all day about it, I would never get my business off the ground. (laughs) And that was mind-blowing to me. Yeah. Because yeah. I screw up once, and that's a good solid two months that I'm just hibernating, <laughs> afraid to talk to anyone. Yeah, there's a. It's almost like we have to have a thick skin with ourselves in some ways, and and be able to take the learning and realize that. I mean, because what is it about failure that we think this punishment that we do to ourselves is? I mean, is it is it is it kind of in the part of our psyche that still believes in the sky god that thinks that there really is someone up there making a list about the shit we're doing all day? <laughs> yes, 
It's yes. It, well, in my case, it's not a sky god. It's it's uh, the the introjection of my parents. Right. Yes. Sa- same part but, of the psyche, I think. <laughs> but it's exactly that same part of the psyche. It's the one that says, "Oh, yeah. If, if you have success after that mistake, then really something's wrong with the world." Yes. Yes. So I will now. I will provide my own failure. Right. To prove that there is justice and and karmic resonance in what we do justice in the american way (laughs) (laughs) live justice in the american way that's exactly right well dylan Um, i'm so glad you share you um had that moment of public humiliation so that that 24 or five years later you could share it with us and and kick off my show here today on failure because this is exactly what I'm looking for is stories of you know that meant a lot to people but then in the end you realize that you know it's it is a scar but it's a badge of honor too I mean you 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 know you learned a lot that day you know and uh, and you carry those lessons forward it's, and sometimes you don't figure out what it is that you learned until much much later absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Because while I carried it with me for a long time, it resonated. Oh, it showed up in stories. I found ways to play with it. Yes. Until I had closure on it. And then I went, oh, right. Yeah. Right. Nobody's thinking about me as much as I am. Yeah. 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 Huge, Uh, huge point. Which I still have trouble actually believing. (laughs) Yes, Dylan. That's why we love you. I love you, Kelly Carlin. Were you performing tonight? Uh, tonight I'm not performing. Tonight I'm going to see Literary Deathmatch. Uh, but as long as you ask, a week from uh, Saturday is the next installment of Dylan Brody's Thinking Aloud at the Fake Gallery with Jackie Cation and uh, Brian Farrell. Oh, fantastic lineup. And I would love to have any of your listeners who wish to come show up at the Fake Gallery on Melrose, just east of Heliotrope, at 8 p.m. on Saturday the 18th. Yeah, so Hollywood L.A. listeners, uh, catch that. First of all, the Fake Gallery, a fantastic venue. And, Dylan, and I need to have you back on the show soon. And I, I do. I need to come back. And, and Dylan always brings a great eclectic mix of storytellers and comics and music and uh, very intelligent stuff. So... Uh, so, yeah, go out and see Dylan. Uh, thanks, Dylan. Thank you for having me, Kelly Carlin. Should I be hanging up now? Uh, yeah, I'm going to hang up for you, and uh, we'll uh, we'll see each other very soon, I'm sure. I look forward to it with eager anticipation and bated breath. Oh, exciting. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> so that was Dylan Brody. Um, <clears throat> here's Thomas Edison. He said, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. Winston Churchill says, or said, success is stumbling from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. And uh, Coco Chanel, she's got a different spin on it. She says, success is most often achieved by those who don't know that failure is inevitable. It's kind of an interesting spin. But here's my favorite. From- oh, who's this? We have another caller. Hold on, folks. Wow, that's a crazy ring here on the show when that happens. Hi, caller. I know you were calling during Dylan Brody, so thank you for calling back. Who is this? This is Dave Craig Kelly. How are you doing? Hi, David Craig. David Craig is a is a Facebook and Twitter uh, follower friend and uh, a friend of the show, a listener of the show. David, I'm so glad you made it through here today. I am, too. I was uh, kind of doubting I would, but I'm glad I'm here. Well, me, too. And what part of the country? You're on the East Coast, I believe, right? 
Yes, I'm calling from Massachusetts. Massachusetts. I bet you it's nice and hot and sticky there right now. Yeah, wishing I was back in L.A. right now. You know, in L.A. today is, um, you know how L.A. gets. It gets its, you know, I'm, I'm about a mile and a quarter from the beach, and it's been hot and sticky here all day. So we're finally getting our summer, and uh, but clearly nothing like the rest of this country. I mean, we're, we're very, very, we're actually failing at summer here in L.A. this year. We're, we've failed at it completely. Uh, so, uh, so Mr. Craig, uh, do you have a little anecdotal story or even thoughts about failure and, and what it means in our culture or in your, or your family or in your life? Uh, what do you got to share? Well, I've been thinking a lot about this since you posted, um, the topic for the week. And, um, I've been realizing probably within the past few months, I've, I've started to, to learn a lot about myself and that I've actually been failing myself for mm. quite a long time. Uh, living up to impossible standards that nobody set but myself. I don't know where they came from. And then seeing some patterns in my own family. Uh, for example, um, I know I've posted recently about my father. Uh, he's been sick. Mm. And we find out that he may or may not have stomach cancer or kind of on the fence waiting to find out what's going on, waiting for tests to come back. Mm. And I was complaining to my wife, you know, the guy never goes to a doctor, he never, you know, checks up on himself, never takes care of himself, and I was complaining, he's too prideful, he's just going to swallow his pride, go to a doctor, be gone earlier, he'd be fine. And she's smiling as I say this, and I look at her and I say, what? And she says, that's you. Mm. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, well, you'll be sick for a week and a half, and you keep saying, I'm fine, I'm fine. And I just sat there, and I blinked at her, and I'm like, oh my God, she's right. Yeah. I just never recognized that in myself. <laughs> Yeah, isn't that interesting how hard it is for us to see a how these patterns, uh, these unconscious patterns do come from our parents and that, you know, we think that we want to separate ourselves and be autonomous from our parents and individuate, as Jung says. But uh, we yes, here we are, our our father's son or our mother's daughter. And uh, yeah, and. And it is interesting. You mentioned failing yourself. I mean, are you discuss? Are you talking about like also like perfectionism, like those kind of standards that go on in your your head? Are you are you the person who beats yourself up if you're if you don't get it exactly the way you imagined it? Yeah, kind of like I've been like that all my life, and I think it's just a lot of internal anxiety, and I was a lot of denial, just saying I'm fine, I'm fine, but always having this horrible shyness and fear in my stomach. And never knowing it was really there until about six months ago when I swallowed my pride, went to a doctor, finally got on antidepressants. Mm. And I didn't realize how bad it was, Kelly, until it was gone. Wow. It was like a weight all over me that I didn't know was even there. Wow. And I had started taking them. And a couple of weeks later, you know, my wife, she's checking in on me. She's like, well, you know, how are you feeling? And I was in the kitchen at the time, and I just started crying. Mm. I'm like, I didn't know how bad I was. Mm. Yeah. She said, yeah, you've, you've seen different. Mm. Yeah, it is interesting how much we, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, that, we, that we're willing to take, you know, within our own lives. And it, it's interesting because this is kind of a very subtle edge to what we're talking about here, but... It's the things that we withstand and, you know, like, like the big pile of papers on the desk or, or, you know, the fact that we haven't made, done our taxes yet or that we haven't talked to 
our children, you know, there's always these things that we're in, in our life that, you know, we kind of keep ignoring and, and put under the rug and put under the rugger. And we just, we just take it and take it and take it. And, um, we don't realize what a toll and, and it's kind of a really subtle thing. And so here you are for years and years and years thinking, well, this is just the way it's supposed to be. And I'm supposed to be able to tolerate this level of anxiety or, or whatever you were going through. And, and then swallowing your pride. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because to do so always felt like a failure to me. It's, it's not something you do. Yeah. Problems are what other people have. <laughs> you know, never what you have. You people are crazy and need antidepressants. I'm fine. Right. You're the flawed yeah, you're human beings. Fine. I'm perfect. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so you, you thought you were a man of failure by, by, showing some sort of weakness here, you know, I've got issues, I have mental health issues or something. And yet, look what you found instead of that. Yeah. Wow. And like you so often hear, it takes somebody being ill or facing their own mortality uh, to find out that the impossible standards that you thought your parents had for you that you can never measure up to Mm -hmm. aren't real. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my dad just recently was telling me how, proud he is of me for, for everything that I've ever done in life, for my job, you know, my marriage. Mm. And it just blew me away. It yeah. shouldn't blow me away, but it did. Yeah, because the little voice inside of our head likes to tell us what a piece of shit we are. And uh, right. yeah, yeah. And, and it's loud. <laughs> it's a loud voice. <laughs> and it won't shut up. <laughs> Yeah, it's a fucker, that little voice, you know, and, you know, when I work with clients, uh, one of the things I teach people is that that voice is full of shit and that it's really okay to take that stand that you're, you're not going to go, you're not going to be some suddenly some arrogant human being who doesn't give a shit about humanity or your family or you're going to, you know, be all puffed up and crazy and doing things you shouldn't do. Uh, actually, you're going to be free of you're going to have a lot more energy and, and space inside yourself. And, um, you know, we get so worried about being too much, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Which is really how crazy is that? We get worried about being too much. Like we, we actually worry about being so much that we're going to make other people look bad or something like that. <laughs> and all really our loved ones want for us is um, for us to be happy and to be f- fully realized. Exactly. Mm. Why do we waste a lot of time with all that stuff? I'm telling you, it's ridiculous. It is. Well, I, I'm, I hope your father, I hope the news with your father is good news and I hope, uh, he's comfortable and, uh, and that all goes well in that direction. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Kelly. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, and thank you for coming on. And, uh, you can tell that little, um, voice in your head to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> You have full permission, Again. full permission to tell it to fuck off whenever it shows up and, uh, and enjoy your newfound sense of self and freedom and energy and motivation and passion. That's, that's an, ex- I am. it's exciting. Right. In a lot, in a lot of ways, it's like getting to know myself all over again. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. Well, um, congratulations on that. And I'm so glad you swallowed your pride so that you can swallow your pills every day. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> thank you so much, Kelly. I really enjoy listening to you, oh. and, and I just love everything you do. Oh, thank you, David. And it's it's great to hear your voice and uh, and connect in this way. Have a great great weekend. You too. Take oh, care. Bye. So, uh, yeah. So that little voice in our head that we think, you know, I think we get from our parents certainly, and we get it from our culture. You know, I've noticed that. Um, and uh, and that's the interesting thing about our culture is that, you know, it really Madison Avenue has these ideas that it sends our way about what it looks, what success looks like. You know, what drives me fucking nuts is when I'm watching TV and I watch golf on TV. I know, I know my father made fun of it. Whatever. Fuck him. Uh, I watch golf. I find it exciting. I find Tiger Woods exciting. I like the young guys too. Anyway, uh, but on the golf, when the golf is on the commercials, first of all, there's all the fucking erectile dysfunction commercials, which drive me crazy. It's like when suddenly did limp penises become like the big crisis of America? I guess uh, it is because of all you baby boomers out there. Uh, but the other thing, too, is all these investment commercials. And I used to watch these things and think, oh, my God, I am such a failure. I only have a certain amount of money in my IRA. I can't afford to put money in every year. Um, I don't have a million dollars in the bank. I don't know what my fucking number is. You know, there's that one commercial where the people like actually carry around their number. $6,188,000. That's how much I need to retire. And it's like, I don't have anything close to that kind of a number. And uh, that very much worries me. Uh, and I used to think, oh, I'm such a failure. I'm I'm a piece of shit. And, um, you know, the one thing about this recession that has really helped me is that I see that, um, you know, uh, not everyone is a millionaire. <laughs> in fact, most people aren't. And we're all struggling in our own way. And uh, I am tired of feeling like a failure because I don't live up to some Madison Avenue concept of success or um, what it means to be a, a good American, something like that. Uh, the number here is 323-473-3112. Uh, it's 534. Um, I have no more callers right now, so I'm just going to keep talking. Uh, so the, um, the one quote that I, uh, David so rudely interrupted me with, with his calling in was, um, Stephen Wright's quote, which is, um, if at first you don't succeed, destroy all evidence that you tried. I really do like that. <laughs> I love, love, love Stephen Wright. Um, so my own experience with failure, I've, I had a good mm, 20 years of my life where I, I was so afraid. Oh, here comes someone now. Hold on. Hello. Who's this? <laughs> Hi, this is Judy Cohen. Hi, Judy Cohen. Everyone, this is my friend Judy Cohen from the Bay Area of California. She's a master coach and uh, a very nice and funny woman uh, besides being a coach. Hey, how's your Thursday going, Judy? 
Well, you know, just in honor of your show, I failed big time um, <laughs> just before I called you because I couldn't get the live feed, and you had very generously invited me to come in and call and tell my failure story. And here I was failing because I couldn't hear, and I was going to let you down and let me down, and it was this whole big thing. <laughs> and what's so great about this magnificent failure is this in the scheme of failure, it's such little shit. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything, but I got myself so damn worked up about it. My heart was beating really loudly, and I'm like, what the hell are you doing? This is not even a big failure. <laughs> yeah, big failure is like driving off of a bridge or something. That would be a big failure. Well, actually, that wouldn't be such a big failure because you probably wouldn't have to think about it afterwards and be embarrassed. Oh, what a bad driver you were. That is very true. I think I think that says something about failure, which is the worst part about it is ruining and ruining and ruining over it. Yeah, well, you know, my mind probably just like everybody else's is so good at making up such a horror story. I should be in Hollywood because the treatment that I give it is really, it, it, it just doesn't stop. I'm riveting and riveting my own story. <laughs> I am riveting in the hell that is my mind. <laughs> <laughs> and reveling, I hate to admit it, too. <laughs> so you're the, you're the protagonist and the antagonist. How fun. Exactly. You know, it's sort of like you get to be judge, jury, and on trial. Yes. Nothing like a little narcissism there. Yes, that's our first caller uh, called about that, and we were talking about the narcissism of failure that really, uh, you know, we are the only people walking around worrying about this shit. No one else is. Oh my gosh, I missed that. I didn't. I thought I was so special that I was the only one. Oh Damn no. It. No, it's it's a regular call-in show. We have multiple callers. We've already had two on today. It's very exciting. <laughs> well, this is great. Well, I want to tell you my failure story because it actually was the best thing that ever happened to me, although when it happened, I was not singing that tune. So um, this good friend of mine, whom you know as well, Eric Coder, um, suggested that if I wanted to get ahead in my career several years ago, I needed to fail flamboyantly. Mm. And I looked at him and I said, you're absolutely nuts. I'm not going to do that. I'll fail a little bit, but who in their right mind would choose to fail flamboyantly? And he said, take it from me. Said, well, you haven't failed flamboyantly recently. I don't think I should take it from you. <laughs> but as life would have it, the universe listens to him as opposed to me. And I auditioned for a uh, job and I flunked the audition. And meanwhile, everybody expected me to get it. It was going to be really simple. And unfortunately, due to some technical difficulties with my hearing aids at the time, I could not hear what was going on. And um, I didn't pass. So I failed flamboyantly in front of lots of people, in front of my colleagues who said, oh, you're a shoo-in. So <laughs> I was totally embarrassed. Kiss How of death. I, you know, they found out about me. Now there was no place to hide. So for three days, I was like really irritated and angry and I made them wrong and I was righteous. And then failure did its magic on me. And um, 
I ate my pride and I thanked them. I sent the note to the faculty and I said, thank you so much for appointing me. This is really the best thing that happened and um, thank you. And I wasn't quite there then, but I thought, I'll look at it at least on paper and I'll throw into it. Um, <laughs> but what that forced me to do is create my own intellectual property. It had me create a... Um, online um, Dear Abby uh, columns uh, for coaches, uh, and I became internationally well-known. And none of this would have happened if I didn't fail flamboyantly. Wow. Wow. So so actually, f- failure opened up a path that was uh, was was the path that, that took you to where you are today. Yeah, I mean, it was like the answer to my dream in a way. And what I realized just thinking about failure for me is sort of like a coach from hell. It calls you forth in a way that um, nothing else will because when I flunked that audition, I came to the end of the vision of myself. Mm. And that's all I knew. And then I stepped out into the void and there was nothing there. So rather than die, I created something and I realized that was, the best thing for my creative process. I would not be where I am today without it. Wow. And that's, that's such a great, beautiful point is the destruction of an idea of who we are or, or, you know, who we think we're meant to be. And it's so concrete that, that idea that we, we grasp and attach ourselves to. And then if failure can crumble all of that, if you let it crumble that, yeah. and then you're left with the ashes, really. I mean, that's what you're left is with the ashes and, and to be willing to sit with that part, the part where it's the failures happen. There's only ashes around you. Everything's smoldering. Everything's in pieces. And to sit with that and to realize, I'm guessing part of it is like, wow, I, I survived it. I survived the very thing that I thought would fucking kill me. Exactly. And then, you're, nobody can touch you. It, it's like such a feeling of power. Mm-hmm. It, it's great. And it also then, at least in my case, but I think it's true for other people as well, I really gained a whole bunch more empathy for how hard it is to make change mm. and how lazy and comfortable I get in my supposed success that I am not willing to risk failure, you know. I'll risk it for my clients. I'll tell them that they should go fail flamboyantly now. But um, I'm not jumping off the bridge anytime in the near future, except I probably will, I should say. Yeah, you, yeah but, I have a feeling you will. Yeah, I have a feeling you're going to have something to do with that. Yeah, so, yeah, it, it, yeah it's, it's a really, it's a great gift if you let it be. And, you know, the last thing I want to say is, I think if you really care about something, then you should be willing to fail. Mm. Because if you're not failing, you're not learning. And that's what we're here for. You're mm. not going to get ahead in life. I'm not going to get ahead in life unless we are willing to fail. And that has to be part of the learning process. As much as I hate it, it disgusts me, it irritates me, but nothing has pushed me further. 
Well, and you know, I talk to a lot of stand-up comedians and all sorts of performers, and they always say that when things don't go well is when they learn the most about their craft. Because especially with comedy, you know, it's really easy to fail because you're not getting a laugh and it's a very instant feedback. And, and that's, it's, and the thing is, one of the things I learned too about all of this, whether it's applause or no applause or no laughter or laughter, it's really neutral. It's feedback. It's just feedback from the environment. And it's really our job to decide what kind of meaning we put on it. How do we use this feedback? Do we use it to destroy ourselves? Do we use it as information to, to do something different um, and improve something if that's the direction we're trying to go? Do we use it as information to tell us, oh, maybe this is really not what I want and I'm willing to walk away from it now. So it's ultimately, it's just information. And it's uh, what you just said so damn important because I know that there have been a lot of times where um, I've been met with silence, not necessarily after telling a joke, but after saying something and people are silent and they're looking at me and my mind immediately makes up a story that I'm stupid or I'm not making sense or whatever the latest thing is. And then I realize people are just taking time to process what I've said. Mm-hmm. And that silence isn't necessarily failure, it's yes. the, as you're saying, it's feedback, but the key is to stay curious with it. And that, I think, is the real hard part. You know, I get so judgmental about myself failing, but I'm hardly curious in that moment. After the fact, I can be, but while it's happening, I don't want to ask any questions. I don't want to know anything. I just want to go back to my horror show and revel <laughs> in how awful I'm feeling. <laughs> so dramatic. <laughs> my my person and you're laughing at me nobody appreciates how much i suffer in those moments <laughs> oh. <laughs> but i appreciate it because it's all learning you know it's great yes it is it is well that's oh, well th- thank you for having me on i actually need to run and i'm so glad that i got to uh call in and that i'm not a failure in the call-in so. <laughs> You succeeded at calling in today. You did very good job. Little gold star next to your name. Thank you. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you for being uh, the anti-failure today by having the courage to talk about this topic. Oh, thank I you. Mean, this is not something that gets people to call in. I know. That's what. Are you what... about masochism next week? I know. I know. That's how I started the show. I'm like, yeah, I'm sure you people are really thrilled. I'm talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Judy. Oh, have a have a beautiful, very powerful thing. Oh well, so yeah, I think I think it is too. Well, thank you, and have a great weekend. You too. Have fun. Okay, bye. bye. Oh my God, we have another call right away. This is so exciting. Hello, welcome to the show. Who's this? This is Paul Myers. Paul Myers. Hey, everyone. It's Paul Myers, or known as Pull My Ears on Twitter. Pull My Ears with one L. Yes, it is. It's, if people are looking for it, it's the, it's the time for self-promotion. It's, it's the Dutch spelling. I don't know. <laughs> it is the, it's the traditional Dutch spelling, actually. I inherited it. I won it in a poker game. <laughs> You know, the Dutch have all the money. This is what I've heard. They've got all the money. Mm-hmm. Don't know what that means. I, I, but I, didn't they also pollute the Gulf? 
Was that, was that the Dutch? Oh, no, that was the British. No, right? that was oh, the yeah. that was BP. That was the British. Uh, well, I guess I was trying to deflect it because my parents are from England. Uh huh. See, uh huh. Your parents have failed uh-huh. us <laughs> as well, a yeah. nation. Well, talk about failure. Now, there's 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 an example. They failed big time, and now the Gulf's having the record tourist season. Like they're just they they actually did them a favor. Wow. I watch TV. I see the ads. There's there's Cajun music happening down there now. <laughs> there is. There's they got a BP spokesman saying it's fine. There's a Junkanoo holiday somewhere in the Gulf right now as we speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think you're just calling it blackened shrimp, right? Like that. <laughs> <laughs> They're just redefining blackened. Mmm. <laughs> you don't need any olive oil for that, baby. Exactly. Oh my lord! So uh, you're you're attracted to this topic of failure. I'm curious. Well, what is what is what do you want? Tell me. I had I had second thoughts about calling it, but I'll tell you why. I I don't want it to look like I identify with failure so much as I I'm a firm believer in. I, we've talked. I've been on your show before. Hi everybody. I've been on the show before. And one of the things that I talked about last time was the how it take, took me a long time, like a, a what, what they call a late bloomer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, I'm what they call a late bloomer. <laughs> Me and, too, darling. Um, I can relate. I don't know why I said it like that. But anyway, um, so, 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 but the, part of that came from the fear of failure mm. and the fear of, the fear of engaging and the fear of connecting with something that matters to you. And in my case, I did spend a lot of time trying actively and frankly failing to become a rock star when I was a kid. And I, I, you know, I had a career. I, I played. There are people who would know who I am, but that doesn't mean, you know, I was successful necessarily. I wasn't unsuccessful, but I, I failed at the big dream at the time. Now, for years, I saw that as a curse or as a, you know, I was tainted. That was like I had a cloud above me. Mm. And then I realized I started writing about music and I started doing other kinds of things. And lately, I've been doing a lot of storytelling and and tweeting and, and tweeting hardly counts as a career move, but in my <laughs> case, it actually has it actually has helped me understand my voice. And one of the things that I'm learning is I'm not a failed musician. I'm just I'm just a Paul Myers, you know. Mm. And like, and I'm actually not a failed musician because I started looking back and realizing like I still do music and I do what I was was fa- I had failed in my preconception of what my career was supposed to be. Wow, what I thought my career was supposed to be, and you know. Like I'm sure your stories today and, and, and a lot of times on your show, people will set, tell you it's not what you set out to do sometimes. And then you end up finding this other thing that you do. Yep. You know, Absol- so that's that's where I was drawn to this. Is I, I guess just in a, I can I can totally vouch for the concept of of uh, saying, why not start failing now? So that you can get better at something or find something new once you fall. You know, and <laughs> yeah. it's terrible to say that to people. You don't want to tell kids, you know, hey, jump off a cliff and find out how to break your leg. Yeah. You do it next time. But I think it's a really... There is, there is something to that. There is a lot to that. And, you know, my parents protected me from failing. My dad rescued me all the time. We had a very codependent household. Both my parents rescued me from any trouble I got into or anything. And, you know, any time I, oh, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Well, that's okay, you know, and I'd just be giving up because I was reaching up against and 
pushing up against some sort of friction, you know, in a direction I was going. And everything had always come very easy to me in school. I was a straight A student and made friends easily and things always came easily to me. And then when I went towards something that takes a little more effort and craft and time to, to, uh, you know, to, 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 to do in, in, in my life. And the minute I got any kind of resistance or friction from, you know, the environment back at me, I would just give up and my parents would be like, oh, it's okay. You can do whatever you want. You can go the other direction now. Did not help me at all. Didn't teach me how to persevere. Didn't teach me that I would survive failing. And I can so relate to your late blooming thing because I was, I'm certainly a late bloomer. And I too had such a fear of failing on any level that I would rather just be invisible and miserable and blame my life on A, B, and C than have to look at myself and go, Oh, <laughs> I'm gutless. <laughs> It really, and you know, it really is true. It really is true that a lot of this is trial and error. And um, was it, well, oh God, I keep thinking of all these things. I remember when other people said it better than me. But like, there's there's that thing where uh, people say, you know, and then when I didn't die, mm-hmm. you know, like and, yes, and, and then you know, I thought I would die if I went out and did like uh, for for me, for instance, I couldn't believe that I could go out in front of people and just talk and tell my life and, you know, maybe get a couple of laughs. I'm not a comedian, but I, you know, I, I like to have a few laughs in what I talk about. I have a natural sense of humor. So I like to put that in. I like to be myself. And then I was trying to do that on stage and I didn't think I could do it without feeling like everyone was going to hate me. Everyone was going to, or if something didn't go as well as I wanted, would it kill me? Mm-hmm. It didn't kill me. Mm-hmm. In fact, in most cases I left with all of my bones intact and no, <laughs> no, no break in my skin. That one time in Cleveland, boom, boom. But seriously, you know, like, and so the thing is, that thing of recognizing that you didn't die, and then also when you get something right, uh, it's a very Zen thing. I I, I don't want to be this guy who took three Buddhism courses and then kind of thinks he knows he knows what he should. But the truth is, I have actually done some some beginners Buddhism things, and one of the things that just appealed to me, and one day I will continue my studies. Don't get me wrong, but one of the things that really impressed me was the idea of saying that things are no better and no worse than they are. Like you know, you mm. like so somebody says you're great, and you go, "Thank you for saying so." Mm. Somebody says you're shit, you say, "Fuck you for saying so." Right. And and the truth is, either way, you might not be as great as they said, and you certainly won't be as shit as they said. Yep. And that kind of inoculates you. So, but then if you celebrate your successes, yeah. you kind of have a small inoculation on your failures because you know, well, I got it right once. Yeah. You and, know, and then maybe, you know, this is just another cycle, you know? And success is a very personal thing. I mean, it's one of the, something I wanted to talk about today was, you know, um, every time I go on stage, uh, it's going to be a different reaction from the, the audience. I can't control what they're going to do with my material, but I always set a personal goal for myself. And I know if I've been successful or not at that goal. And, and then whatever the audience says, and I've gotten very lovely positive feedback from audience members. And I, I thank them gratefully. Even if I feel like I didn't do enough or didn't have the right kind of show or wasn't present enough, I thank them because they clearly got something out of it. And, and you're right. I mean, a year ago when I started getting reviews for my show, I was like, oh my God, I got a review and I would read it and I'd cry and it'd be so beautiful and everything. And, and then I'd get some so-so kind of ones too. And then I just realized, wow, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, funny, you, you, yeah. 
Go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, oh, I just want to say that you just, you said something about defining your own success. And I think that's, you know, it's interesting when I think what I was drawn to when I saw that the subject was failure wasn't so much failure as, as actually talking about success mm-hmm. because failure is just a word, you know, failure is just a word for I mean, nothing like left to lose. <laughs> because I like to live every day to the fullest. And tomorrow is the, anyway, uh, the first day of the rest of your failure. I don't know. I'm not good at that. Uh, but oh, that's the other thing, by the way. Um, so, okay, so somewhat, like defining your own success. That's, that's what I want to jump on. So you, you, I thought that I, success for me would be getting signed to a major record deal. This is how 1973 my dreams were. <laughs> And, and, and owning the top of the line Nintendo. No. And, uh, uh, so having a record deal and being a, you know, arena style, you know, arena sized rock singer making awesome albums like my heroes. Mm. Now that's a pretty good thing to want, but it's, it's not the only thing to want. Mm. And also it doesn't mean that I'm not living a good life. Yes. You know, like, and so like I'm very successful, like, without sounding like one of those smug guys in a happy relationship, I feel like I really love my wife. And I feel like when I was a kid, one of the things that would, I thought would make me successful in my mind would be having a girlfriend just to meet a girl. <laughs> and then I lucked out and met like a great girl. So it's like, I'm already feeling kind of like I won something, you know, mm. like, you know what I mean? And like, again, I don't want to sound like a, a smug guy, you know, sure. You know, like it, it, you know, like a, a relationship's a living, moving thing. So you can't just say I have a good relationship. But I, I like to think this is pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not a failure in something. Yeah, yeah, no, and and it's, uh, you know, I I can relate. I mean, growing up, I, I don't think I ever consciously thought about this, but I think part of what always stopped me from starting was for me, success had to look like uh, 2,500 to 4,000 people um, sitting in a theater uh, there to see me stomping their feet, chanting my name and laughing for an hour and a half straight. And because that's what I grew up with my dad. And uh, the irony of that is that my dad throughout his career, when he first started, he just saw stand-up comedy as step two in this big three-part plan that he had created. He he clearly, at 10 years old, he had this plan. Step one, become a DJ. Step two, right. uh, become a stand-up. And step three, become an actor, just like Danny Kaye. And that was his dream, just like Danny mm-hmm. Kaye. And as mm-hmm. he got closer to that dream in the 60s and started doing some acting and getting some actual movie parts with, I mean, of all people, Doris Day and Brian Keith. I mean, that's, you know, pretty it in the 60s. He hated it and he had to redefine his idea of success and realize that what he was actually good at and what he was getting uh, a lot of joy from was this other thing, this stand-up thing. And then, of course, when he really owned his voice in stand-up in the early 70s is when he exploded on the scene. And and so I really, I mean, I talk about this in my show, the importance yeah. of giving up on this. And I was just talking about it with another caller, you know, giving up on this older idea of who we are or letting it shatter to the ground, maybe when it fails. And instead of, you know, desperately picking up the pieces and trying to fit them back together in some way, realizing, you know, kind of looking around and going, OK, now what? You know, what's really here for me? Yes, and by the way, if people don't know your show, it's a great show. Oh, it's thank very you, very inspirational that way too. 
it's 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 like I those stories that you told about about your dad changing ambitions and stuff like that, and then also how it affected you, and also that idea you said about being protected from failure. All of those strong ideas I've gotten from seeing your show, and it it stayed with me. You know, it's 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 it, it should be required reading. <laughs> um, but hey, but that thing too, you know, you just reminded me, like, how many great success stories involved a mistake? Yes, probably ninety nine percent of them. Direction. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, the quote I started the show with was um, Thomas Edison: "I have not failed. I've just found ten thousand ways that won't work." You know, wow, I mean, awesome. yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like he didn't see it as a failure. He just thought, okay, it's not that way. It's not that way. It's not that way. But the way is there somewhere, and uh, and I'm just going to keep you know plugging along until I find it, and. Um, you know, I was also thinking about earlier what you were saying about, um, you know, not dying from it and that, that, you know, the aphor- aphorism, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> it's actually really true because there's, there's only a few things that can kill you and they're pretty serious and they're physical usually. And yeah. getting up on a stage somewhere, you can feel like you're dying inside if it doesn't go well, but it's ultimately not going to kill you. <laughs> I just watched that Bob Marley documentary and literally there was a gig where somebody said they were going to kill Bob Marley and uh, he goes out and he just does his thing. And it's almost like the defiance of him saying, well, at least me go out, you know, me go out with the, the, you know, the bullets cannot harm me when I'm in the zone, you know, Mm. like it was like totally. And it was like, you know, and that, you know, he's probably wrong. The bullets would probably harm him, but. (laughs) But at least, but he kind of willed it to not happen by being kind of like not afraid of it. Yeah, and, yeah, and and that's something. But we, you know, we can't always find that courage. So I think yes. the more useful thing to tell people is go ahead and fail. You know. Yep. Yeah. I, I wrote myself. I wrote myself a song as I often do. I just want to tell you, uh, years ago I wrote a song. Rome wasn't built in a daydream. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and and the whole point was about inactivity and and perfection being a paralyzer. Okay. Mm. Mm. And one of the lines that I was really happy with was um, uh, that uh, no one's going to hear if you don't make a sound was one of the lines. I like that. And Oh, you can't plant seeds in neutral ground and no one's going to hear if you don't make a sound. Mm. And then there's a line, um, you might, was it, was it, you might just fall off the beaten track, but once you fall forward, you don't fall back. Mm. And, and falling forward is a very big part of my life, you know, almost stumbling, you know. I love that Something falling forward. forward. Yeah. And because ultimately, you know, no matter what life is moving forward, whether it, f- it feels like a failure or a success, uh, time is, is, has moved on and it is the next moment. And, uh, the next moment is built on the last moment. And, uh, and I, I like that. I love all that imagery. It's really, it's beautiful. You know, it's funny. It's also that thing about writing songs, uh, 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 uh oh, no, sorry, about, about, um, Make uh, the quote you've had about you know attempts at you know the failed attempts at getting to the one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, I've written a lot of songs in my life, and I I, you know, I may not have written a song that everybody knows or a, what we call a hit hit song, but I've I've had songs that worked and they were good and I like them and people have liked them when they finally get to hear them. Mm. And the thing about that is I've written thousands of other songs that nobody should ever hear. <laughs> And and the whole point is like and I, I met a guy who wants to write songs and he said I don't know every time I start something it, it starts to be crap and I stop and I and I I, I thank him and then and I, and I said but the truth is you should write the crap songs just don't show them to anyone and yes kind of 
it was kind of news to him. Yeah. Like that people would ever have an attempt at something that they don't show you. Yes. Yes. That's a great, that's a great point. I think that's, I think that's a great point for any kind of artist. You know, how many, how many canvases did the masters go through? You know, how many drafts did the great writers go through? I mean, it's just, you have to kind of, I mean, Anne Lamott talks about it all the time, you know, that you have to shitty first drafts. You have to get the shitty first drafts out and uh, something, something will come about and then of course the editing is always an amazing process too and people oh my god i am so in love with editing right now mm. I'm, I'm in the middle of writing a, a short piece for an anthology and it's all about my childhood and i've been taking a long time well, it's actually about my adolescence but i've been taking a long time even interviewing people uh that i grew up with to sort of get get my memory jogged and then i had to finally realize that i was holding off on writing the first draft mm. and then i realized oh i can write the crappy like i had to remind myself after all this time yep. i can write the crappy first draft and then I'm chiseling now. I've, I've been chiseling at it, and I've been throwing out sentences and moving stuff around, and, yep. and all that witty stuff that I love. All that, and you know, I'm at the stage now where I don't want to just be witty. I want it to be like I want it to be fun for the reader, but I don't want it to be like distractingly clever. Yes, you know. But all that stuff's coming out now, and I'm starting to get into the place where I can come up with the truly clever nugget, or I think it's clever anyway. <laughs> and and you know what? But you know what I mean? And yes. I realize, oh my God, I love second draft because. You've got all the stuff there. Yep. Yep. You know, exactly. Now you, now you just get to throw stuff out and polish it. Yep. You know, it's like burled oak, you know, <laughs> exactly. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful image. It is just like that. It is. It's uh, driftwood you know, art, driftwood but, art, driftwood <laughs> art, but you have to be willing to like, you know, do the shitty first draft or I say vomit on the page and get it out there. And yeah, it's most of it's going to be drag, but uh you know, it's not a failure. It's just part of the process, just like a life. Friend of mine, friend of mine, put me off with the term. Uh, she said it's like puking into a bucket, and I, I was like, "Oh, couldn't you come up with something nicer?" <laughs> <laughs> she said, "It's like well, because the, the analogy continues with her saying it's like puking into a bucket, and then you go in and pick out the good bits." I'm like, "No, <laughs> oh, God. generally, I don't do that." You know, there's probably one time in my life that I did that. And it was just, you know, everyone did it once. I think everyone sent it through their own barf to, to give to somebody. But, you know, really, you don't. You don't really do that. You, know? you have to be pretty fucked up to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, drunk. So, so, listen, drunk. so I'm glad you, like, yeah, we, we have better analogies now. That's, that's funny. Good. That's funny. Well, that's pa- one thing. Paul, yeah. thank you for calling. This has been really hey, no fun. No problem at all. It's always, yeah, I love hearing your voice, too. I mean, uh, you really run a good show. Oh, thank you, darling. I'm just trying my ass off here. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I'm willing to fail every fucking day here. Yeah. Well, that's, and look how good, look how good you are because of that. Oh, you know? Well, thank you so awesome, much. Awesome, right? Okay, awesome. Well, have, yeah, have a, I'm going to listen to the rest of the show. All right, sweetie. Have a great weekend. Yeah. Bye. Bye. So there's this, uh, I'm going to, I know I'm going to be interrupted by a caller, but that's fine. Uh, there's this great book that I have here. It's called The Way of Transition. Uh, embracing life's most difficult moments it's by william bridges i highly recommend this book to anyone who feels like they're going through a major transition in life uh like and i always say as you know i'm processing so much this week like when the fuck am i not in transition that's what i want to know like there and the thing is i figured out it's like nothing ever settles down into stasis because if it is it means i'm dead and we all know how that ends uh but there's this great passage here where he says um And when we find ourselves in transition, we think that we'd better do a little planning, set some goals, make a to-do list, tape up some affirmations on the bathroom mirror. Then when things start to improve, we say that our technique worked. We fail to see that we have just come through a long neutral zone and made, at last, 
a new beginning. See, this is what I love. There's all this, you know, and as a coach, too, I, I, I sometimes my mentality falls into this trap. But the real thing is, is that life is just a series of accidents and and luck and failings and successes and tripping over ourselves and falling forward, as Paul said. And, the, you know, yes, we can. Yes, we need if you want to lose weight, you need to have some organization organization and structure around your life in order to lose weight, or if you want to go in a certain direction with your career, yes, you need some organization and some structure around that. There's nothing wrong with organization and structure, but the bottom line is, is that most people who've had great success in their life did not sit at like age 20 and like plot it out and, and have like great successes along the way. Most people who are who are successful or who are not even successful, just fulfilled in their life are so because they followed the accidents. They followed their failures. They listened to the deep, small voice inside of them, not the nasty fucked up one we talked about earlier in the show with David Craig, but the other voice, that voice that really, really knows who you are and what you've been put on this earth to do. And it's no bullshit. And it trusts you. That voice that's the one you have to listen to and start to trust. That's the one I started trusting a few years ago in myself. I started trusting about 10 years, but just about mm, 70% I started listening to it. I actually could hear it finally. I could, I could separate it from the nasty saboteur voice that told me what a piece of shit I was. I was starting to hear the other even quieter voice, the deeper voice that, 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 that I know has has some bigger understanding of who I am and and asks me to get out of my way. If I can get just get out of my way and trust that this urge inside of me to to write this piece or to do this show or to make a topic like this and do a call in show and just kind of jump off the cliff. If I follow those urges, not literally jumping off a cliff, come on, people. Oh, look, someone's calling. I'm so excited. Hold on. Hello. Welcome to the show. Who's this? Hello, Kelly. This is Darren Staley. I'm a failureholic. <laughs> it's the grand poobah of failing. Darren Staley, everyone. How are you doing tonight? It's been a great show. I, I tell you what, I've been sitting here nervous about calling in uh, for the past uh, hour, and now I've got to follow Dylan Brody and Paul Meyer, so that's great. That's good. Well, you know, we're just building the show up to, uh, you know, to the big to the big climax here, which is you. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure or anything, really. I don't want to put any more pressure on you. Right. Uh, thanks uh, for, for uh, having a, a star-studded uh, cast come on before me. But... Uh, no, I, I've uh, I really enjoyed what you were talking about a minute ago uh, about uh, how you have, sometimes you have to transition. And, you know, I don't know how far uh, how far I'm going to go here, or you want me to go. But you know, I had some major transitions go on. You know, I worked for uh, about ten years at a glove factory, then it shut down, and I started going to school, and then uh, went into the severe agoraphobia and didn't leave the house for about a decade. Mm. And uh, now somehow I'm coming out on the other end and I've got uh, this uh, great whatever thing I'm doing with comedy and stuff. And it's, it's really weird. It's almost like going to sleep with one life and waking up into another. Yes. And, uh, 
you know, uh, and there was a lot of feeling like a, a failure in the meantime, but it's, it's, it's kind of crazy the way, uh, the things life throws at you and how you come out on the other end. Yeah. I mean, it's, isn't that a, a perfect example of that, that, you know, it's like, no matter, it's like, are we really in charge of the direction of our life? I mean, who, who could have, you could have never imagined, you know, uh, however long ago, two years ago in your life, three years ago, whatever it was, the direction it took. And, and because so many like strange, interesting, fascinating moments had to happen that, um, you know, if you hadn't been an agoraphobic and locked in your house for 10 years, uh, who, who knows, uh, what your relationship with, uh, Twitter would have been, which is where you and I met actually and Dylan Brody met and, and how that, that meeting of us on Twitter sparked something in your life and, and, and just ignited something and, and showed you, I'm guessing, literally a whole nother path that was lit up suddenly. Yeah, that, that's exactly how it happened, and, and I can tell you, if, if if things hadn't happened that way, uh, you know, I was never uh, really a big computer guy, you know, except for, uh, you know, in the early days, I watched a lot of porn and stuff on it, but, you know, it's, as far as Twitter... Because you're a good thing, American, Darren, you're a good American. <laughs> <laughs> But, but yeah, I mean, you know, when I when I started uh, when I started at the factory, uh, you know, I was a high school dropout, and uh, I worked there. I, of course, like the idiot I am, I dropped out in the twelfth grade. It's <laughs> a great year to drop out when you're when you're done. So I dropped out in the twelfth grade, and then I went to work. And uh, I think in the, in the meantime, even when I was, I want to say under, because you know, agoraphobia really is like a, a coma in a yep. lot of ways. Yep. Uh, you know, you're you're awake, but nothing's really coming in or going out. Yeah. Uh, but you know, during that time, I did you know go online. I took some classes. You know, I got an education. I mean, I always thought you know I was you know pretty normal. You know, I don't want to say stupid, but you know, just uh, average guy. And then next thing I know, I'm going to school. Uh, I'm enjoying all this stuff that I've never been exposed to. It's literature stuff, but this is really cool. And then somehow or another, once I start coming out, I'm still using, you know, technology in the online. And then I hit Twitter, and you're exactly right. For, for some reason, and Dylan always hates when I say this, and I've said it to you and Dylan and Paul as well. You know, Dylan always hates when I attribute any of, you know, me getting better to any of you guys because he's like, well, you know, you did the work, you did the work. And I'm like, yeah, but there was kind of a spark. You know, there was, you know, you guys kind of said, when I got on there, you know, I was – you know, I would never thought about being a comedian, but you guys kind of said, you know, hey, you know, this is what you're doing here. You know, this is funny. You know, we like you. You should keep engaging in us and, and you know, engaging with us. <laughs> that, that other thing is different, and I think it's illegal in 14 states. Yeah, but, you know, engage and you it, it kind of kept building my confidence and building my confidence. And then next thing I know, I think, well, you know, well, maybe, you know, maybe I'm funny enough that I can, you know, maybe write some comedy. So I start doing that. Then I start with the radio show. And then the next thing I know, I'm doing that. Then all of a sudden I think, you know, if I can do all this, why can't I go ahead and get my driver's license that I hadn't driven in 12 years? And, you know, next thing I know, I believe it was uh, just a few months ago. I got my driver's license now. I'm out driving, and I got this, you know, crazy radio show. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually, and that's uh, one thing I want to mention too about failures. You know, being agoraphobic, and I also had a wife and kids. Uh, you know, I was always the, uh, you know, the quote unquote breadwinner of the family. And uh, 
glad I went under, you know, I wasn't, you know, I was not a contributor at all. And that can, you know, that's a, that's a real blow to the psyche. Uh, yeah. More than people really know, you know, when you can't, when you see, you know, your, your wife and kids get up, go to work, go to school, you know, be a part of life every day. Yes. And you're just like an observer. Yes. That's, 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 a, that's a real tough thing. And to think that now that, you know, I'm out, you know, hey, I'll, I think I'll pick up the groceries today. It's really something that I think people would have to really live to understand what a huge thing that is. Uh, I'm not saying you know, I'm great or anything for doing it. I'm saying it's, it's a huge life changing. I, I so agree. And, I, and it's the same kind of. It's because if my listeners, my new listeners don't know, I was agoraphobic myself for about 10 years and and what had still drove my car and stuff, but was very locked into a very limited amount of places I could drive my car and, and had severe panic attacks. It was a horrible existence. And you really you really think when you're in that place that there's no life without that, like you can't imagine not having anxiety anymore. And. And it feels like it's a different planet. Like that would have to be a different reality and a different planet to be on that. And it's, it's the very much the same thing around, I think, you know, stepping up and, and living into listening to that small voice inside of us. The one that knows the one I was just talking about, the one that knows who we really are and, and what we're here on this planet to do. And. And there's a part of us that doesn't believe that we could ever step into that place, that we could ever be, uh, you know, living out the dreams that, you know, and, 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 and actually being and doing that stuff or even trying it or just attempting it even. And yet it's, it's there. It's there for the taking. And, and there is something about uh, getting over agoraphobia for me is you have to be willing I think I had to be willing to prove to myself, like, okay, I'm either going to die or I'm not going to die because you feel like you're going to die. I mean, you really do. <laughs> and yeah, I, yeah, and, and, yeah, that's that's. I think that's a big misconception people have. You know, I mean, you really do. You, you really think, do. Yeah. If I turn left instead of right, I will die. Yes, absolutely. And it's so irrational, and you even know it's irrational. So it's even worse because you're beating yourself up because you know it's irrational, but it feels so real. I used to say to people, if God himself came down and said to me, oh, Kelly, stop it. You're just having a panic attack. You're fine. I would say, fuck you. No, I'm not. I'm really going to die. <laughs> who are you? Yes. Who are you? Oh, sky God that I don't actually believe in. But God damn it. Who are you? Um, and and so you have to be willing, like with failure, I think, to to, to do the ultimate failure, which is die. I mean, in, in our kind of human world, dying is on some level, certainly in this country the ultimate failure and uh and you have to be willing to do that to overcome that you know that reality that or that lack of reality inside your head as an agoraphobic yeah and that was that was really uh really usually you, you hit that head on uh because that's what i finally ended up saying to myself was so what Right. You know, of course, with the confidence and everything, but you know, a, a lot of it too, uh, especially with you know, because I had the you know the panic uh, to go along with the agoraphobia, yep. which is a wonderful combo. Lovely. But uh, I, I would be you know afraid of maybe you know having a panic attack, embarrassing myself, more so embarrassing the people who were around me. And and finally, once I started you know coming out, I said, you know, so what? Let's say I go somewhere and I freak out. 
Yep. Say I go somewhere and I die. Yep. So what? I'm already halfway, you know, I was already halfway dead a year ago anyway. Yes. Just go and, and see and, and do and do what you can and try to keep pushing yourself. And it, it just kind of worked out for me. But, you know, there was a lot of help along the way. You know, I can't. I, you know, it's it's not easy for a person just because a lot of people will tell people with a mental disease, you know, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps yes. and get over it. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, you really, a lot of people just can't do that. And, it, you know, it, it, it took therapy, it took medication, it took support mm-hmm. and things like that. But, you know, yeah, eventually you, you do have to really, really want it yourself too. And, and not be, like you said, not be afraid. To, to fall on your ass and maybe go back to square one. Well, and I think that last little bit, having to want it for yourself is, is a real key. I think ultimately it's the key to this whole success failure conversation because, you know, if we let the externals be the set point for success or failure and only the externals. I mean, there's nothing wrong with, ex- I mean, look at the Olympics. There's clearly externals and it's very exciting, but you know, I know the woman from Saudi Arabia knew that she wasn't going to win that race, but she was there for her, for her own version of, of success. And, and so it is about having some internal set point, having some internal standards that um, are high enough that they make you reach out past your limits, but not so high that they're ridiculous and unattainable. I mean, perfectionism is just a horrific, horrific thing. And, um, and so, you know, and one of the things is it's great to have people around you who believe in you and who give you confidence and that uh, most of us, I know I couldn't have been out, get on stage without the confidence of my husband and Paul Provenza and my friends who uh, looked me in the eye and said, no, you really need to do this. This is good. You know, we're not blowing smoke up your ass, Kelly. That helps a lot. But ultimately, I have to know that. I have to be able to take that in and know what feels right and feels good for me. And uh, and that, you know, leads you then to the next, what's next, you know, and the next chance to fall on your face or not. But at least it's our choice to do it, you know? Yeah. And, and you're right. And, you know, like you said, with the support, the initial support, and the feedback, that's great. But yeah, I, I totally agree. If, if you don't want it for yourself, uh, there, there has to be some sort of drive to say, and even if you maybe, I mean, there are a lot of people that, that, that don't get better, that yes. can't get better. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with, you know, that I want to, but once, no matter what, I, I'm, I'm getting a little, uh, but you don't want to say it. Yes. You, you, have, you have to want to do it. If you can do it, you have to want to yes, do it. Yes, it has to. It's like getting sober. Like you, said, you know, the alcoholic has to want it for themselves to get sober. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, uh, I, I think I'll, uh, I think I'll uh, go now because I'm, I'm starting to get discombobulated. All here right. And I'm... <laughs> T- go, go take a deep breath. And thank you so much for calling, Darren. It was great to hear your voice again. And uh, everyone, check out Darren's podcast, uh, Dylan Brody's Neighbor's Couch. Uh, it's He's got great guests on it, and he's got a great take on the world. So uh, go and enjoy that fun. All right. Thanks a lot, Kelly. Bye, Darren.
So that is, uh, that is it with the Colin portion of our show. Um, thank you guys today. Thank you for all my friends who called in. I really appreciate that. I feel so damn fucking loved right now. Um, thank you, uh, David Craig and Dylan Brody and Judy Cohen and Paul Myers and Darren Staley. And I think that was all that called. I wrote down all those names. Thank you guys so much for calling and thank you all my listeners for uh, listening live, which I hope is we've been doing and having a fun time with that. And uh, of course, you can download, subscribe to my podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. And uh, you can always go to Smodcast and check out my full archive there. But the archive is also on iTunes and check out my website at kellycarlin.com. Um, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to have some new, I got some sponsors or I'm just affiliate sponsors, but I'll be sharing that with people. So when you go and buy some stuff, um, buy it with my button on my website. That'll be fun. I'm excited about that. That'll help support the show because we need support here. And, um, uh, I just, I want to end today's show actually with a poem. I don't normally do this, but this is one of my favorite, uh, poets and, um, I want to sh- uh, share. His name is David White. And uh, ho- hold on one second here. Just my computer just uh, almost went dead. Just hold on one sec. I'm right here. I swear to God. I just have to plug my computer in. <laughs> no, really. I'm right here. I swear. If I don't plug my computer in, the whole show goes away. And then, and then we all, oh, thank God. Okay, there we are. Okay, good. All right. Whew. See, this is live radio or whatever the hell it is. Okay, this is a poem by David White. It's called The Journey. Above the mountains, the geese turn into the light again, painting their black silhouettes on an open sky. Sometimes everything has to be inscribed across the heavens so you can find the one line already written inside you. Sometimes it takes a great sky to find that first bright and indescribable wedge of freedom in your own heart. Sometimes, with the bones of the black sticks left when the fire has gone out, someone has written something new in the ashes of your life. You are not leaving, even as the light fades quickly. You are arriving. I want to thank you all for being here today, and we're going to go out with my friends Chandler Travis with a little... uh, Fun song. I dedicate this song with love up to the moon and stars above and to the sky that fits them like a glove under the great unknown. Sure ain't no place like home.
Everything is okay anyway. Everything is okay anyway. Well, if the sun comes out each day, everything must be okay. Yes, everything is okay anyway. If all we ever had was total war, and peace and love and giving were a bore, well, if we cried and died all day, you could still hear someone say that everything is okay anyway. Volcanoes, earthquakes, floods, and tidal waves, and man is forced to live again in caves. But if all we had was fire, you'd still hear the caveman choir singing, "Everything is okay anyway." Yes, everything is okay anyway. Everything is okay anyway. Well, if kids come out to play, everything must be okay. Yeah, everything is okay anyway. If no one was allowed to jump or run, if no one was permitted to have fun, and if it rained hard every day, you still hear someone say that everything is okay anyway. Everything is okay anyway. Everything is okay anyway. Well, if you do not miss your pay, if you hear what I will say, you will know that on this day. I have seen a little ray of. Forgetfulness. This has been a production of Smodco Internet Radio.